Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you this morning. If you're new to the summit, my name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here. We're going to dive right in today, and I'm going to tell you off the beginning, some of you are not going to like this sermon, and here's why. Some of you don't like unanswered questions, and I'm going to bombard you with questions today, and I'm not going to answer a single one of them, and that's the point, all right? So I need you to hang in with me, just knowing at the beginning, you're not going to get the answer at the end, all right? Fair? Deal? All right, if you have your books, we're going to dive right in. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to uh, actually start in the Old Testament today in the book of Amos. I'd love for you to, to go there. Or if you have your phones, you can go to the summitstl.info slash notes, and you can follow along there as well. I love the Old Testament. Specifically, I love the Minor Prophets, and the book of Amos is one of my favorite books within the Minor Prophets. It's, it's this prophetic book named after a man, this shepherd who, who lived in the 8th century, who God calls from his home in the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah, and he says, I want you to go into the northern kingdom of Israel where they hate you, and I want you to give them a message. I want you to call them out for their idolatry, for their mistreatment of people, and I want you to, to tell them about my judgment and my justice that's going to come upon them. And so it's this, it's this book that really is just filled with all of this great imagery of how God is... Uh, completely just, and he's this great judge. But what I really want to focus on, I've been wrestling a lot with, you know, the Sunday after Easter is a tricky Sunday of, of what, what do you preach about? Where do you go? What text do you look at? And I came across this passage in Amos chapter 9, the closing of this book. And I want you to keep in mind that even though we're not reading the whole book, what, what Amos has been talking about up to this point is the justice and the judgment of God against sinners, against the wicked, against evil. But then we come to this passage in Amos chapter 9, verse 14 and 15, says this. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let's pray. Awesome, God, as we continue to celebrate the resurrected Jesus. And as we continue to invite his breath that transforms us, Father, we ask you this morning in the same power that brought Jesus out of the tomb, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In his mighty name, amen. As Brian talked about, we're coming off of a, a really amazing Holy Week, a great Easter celebration. Last weekend was awesome. And I, I want to ask you, the first question I want to ask you right out of the gate this morning is, how are you feeling now? How are you feeling now? Is the same message of Christ's life-giving, life-bringing, life-transforming resurrection, is that same message as exciting to you now 
as it was a week ago. Because, and here's the, the big question that I want you to wrestle with today. When you, when you look at Easter, when you look at the heart of the message of the gospel, that Jesus came, he lived, he died for sins, he was buried, and he came out of that tomb, the question that Easter demands us answer is this, that in light of the resurrection, how are you living as a redeemed restorer? In light of the resurrection, how are you living as a redeemed restorer? Now, before we get too far into this, I want to define some terms for us. And so the first one is redeem. What does that mean? Well, redeem simply means to secure the release or recovery of persons by a payment of a price. Right? This is what we focused on on Good Friday, that Jesus on the cross, paying with his life, secured for us what? He secured our release from the bondage of sin. Fast forward two days to Easter Sunday, Jesus walking out of the tomb on Sunday morning, paying with his breath of life, secured for us what? Our recovery from death by proving that he is the only one that can bring dry bones back to life, that he is the only one that can breathe life into those who are dead. And Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus redeemed us. But the question that all of us should be asking out of that is what now? What do we do now? Maybe you, you had a very reflective, very impactful Lenten season. And now that Lent is over, I'm just curious, how many of you dove right back into that thing that you gave up? Right? If you gave up games on your phone, how many of you tried to catch up on that streak that you had in Wordle? But what now? How is that message still impacting you now? Maybe for the first time in your life, you experienced on Good Friday the heavy weight of the cross and the punishment that was taken on your behalf, that it was your sin, my sin, that placed Jesus on the agonizing cross to take payment for your guilt. So the question that you should be asking is, what now? Or maybe you were completely overwhelmed like I was with joy and celebration at the empty tomb and at the picture of those who were raised to walk in the newness of life through baptism. And you went to Sunday lunch and you were just giddy. But what now? You went back to work on Monday. You went through the day-to-day -day life. How is it impacting you now? In light of the resurrection, how are you living as a redeemed restorer? So the second important term in that question that we need to understand is that word restore. And I love this word. We've been talking about it a lot just in, in different places. We were in a community group leaders uh, meeting today, and we spent a long time just talking about restoration and why it's important, not just for leaders of the church, but why it's important for the body of the church and for just the body of Christ to be a people 
that seek to restore one another. What that word means is it's the joining with God in repairing what was broken by sin. Now sit in that for just a second because redemption is done by Christ alone. Restoration is something that we've been invited to participate with God in. It's the joining with God in repairing what has been broken. Because here's the thing, without wrestling with this question of what does it look like for us to become redeemed restorers, without daily asking that question in our lives, Easter Sunday becomes nothing more than a box-checking event. It doesn't become a transformative experience, a transformative encounter with the gospel message that shapes then the rest of our lives. And I think if we celebrate our redemption without joining with God in the work of restoration, I, I believe, church, that we miss out on the fullness of God's plan and what he has invited us into. And so in light of the resurrection, how are you living as a redeemed restorer? invited to participate in God's restoration. And so to help you wrestle with that question, I want to ask you two more questions. And the first one is this. How are you using your resources? How are you using your resources? In uh, the 1920s, there was a, a group of students at the University of Toronto, and they were led by this professor, and they attempted... They wanted to develop a form of insulin that could be synthetically manufactured. And, and ultimately, their goal was to be able to use that into diabetic patients, people that could not produce their own insulin naturally. And so what they would do is they would extract the insulin from the pancreas of animals, and they would purify it, and then they would inject it into humans. Now, I have no idea how any of that works. But it sounds pretty cool, right? But what they found is that it's really, really hard. It's hard to, to get it from the animal. It's hard to purify it. And then when you put it into a human patient, it doesn't last very long. But they made some, some headway. Several years later, this corporation, uh, this, this company by the name of Ellis Lilly, or sorry, Eli Lilly, they took what that group of students learned and they built on it. And they figured out a way to make it easier, to make it safer, and to make it last longer in patients. They actually used uh, E. coli bacteria to produce synthetic, long-lasting insulin. Now, if you were to tell me this story Five years ago, I would have been like, sweet, right? Probably like some of you are right now, like, cool, man. That's, that's great. Animal pancreases and whatnot, right? But five years ago, my family's life changed because my three-year-old son was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic. And I remember as my wife and I we're sitting in the hospital, 
for several days, and we were learning what this now means for him, for us, how we need to care for him, how his life is going to be forever changed by this. And I remember having this thought, and I didn't know all this. I didn't know about this group of students in the 1920s. But I had this thought of, man, I don't know who did it, but I am so thankful that somebody figured out a way for my son to live. And so now I look at this story completely differently. Because here's the thing. We have so many resources at our fingertips that we don't even understand how impactful they are. And part of it is because it doesn't affect us, right? Like I said, five years ago, I would have treated this story completely different than I do today. Part of it is because we miss it. We just don't think about it. We've become used to it. We're spoiled, if you will. But I think what we often forget when we wrestle with this question of how, how do we become redeem restorers is we don't wrestle enough with the question of how are we using the resources that God has given to us. The life-saving, life-bringing resources that we have. Because we have to understand, church, that with the completion of redemption, with the completion of Jesus' work on the cross, with the completion of him walking out of the tomb, and with the invitation to now participate in restoration comes the accessibility to God-given resources. I don't want you to miss this because I love this. God didn't just dump a bunch of Legos on the table and say, okay, build something. I, that's paralyzing to me. I don't, know, I don't know your philosophy of Lego. We're not going to get into that. But I was never the kid that was like, I'm going to build a tower because I could build a great tower, but that's about all I could do, right? But I love to play with Legos, but I needed something to guide me, to help me. And Jesus says, hey, I've provided resources for you to use to participate in restoration. And there are many, I'm going to point out three today. The first one is this. He's given us the spirit of God. The Spirit of God. John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, and catch this, will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus, before he leaves, before we get to the scene in Acts where Jesus ascends back into heaven, one of the last things he tells his disciples is yes, you're going to participate now in God's restoring work in the kingdom here on earth, but the helper is coming to you, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. And so how, friends, are you using the Spirit of God as a redeemed restorer? When you're faced with a situation in your workplace or in your home, and your immediate reaction is to become angry or frustrated 
or discouraged or depressed or overwhelmed, how are you using your access to the Spirit? Are you saying, Holy Spirit, teach me how to respond and remind me of your peace, of your patience, of your kindness, of your goodness? Because Jesus says the Holy Spirit is there to teach you and to remind you. When you're hurt by someone that you deeply trust, by a loved one, and you don't really know how to cope with it, are you saying, Holy Spirit, teach me how to forgive, teach me how to seek reconciliation, or maybe even in some cases, Holy Spirit, teach me how to remove myself from this relationship, but to do it with grace and love. And remind me that I am still loved by a father who will not let me down or hurt me. Or when you find yourself in a place and it just seems like the darkness of this world is past any hope of restoration, right? If you're anything like me, you've wrestled with that, God, I think this place is too far gone. Just when I think it can't get more broken, something happens and I'm like, ooh, yep, it can. And you get into this dark place where you're like, I just don't know that there is any hope for humanity. Holy Spirit, teach me that that's a lie. And remind me that Jesus' work on the cross and Jesus' breath coming out of the tomb conquered the darkest of evil. And he can bring life to a pile of dry bones. How are you using the Holy Spirit as a redeemed restorer? The second resource that I want to point out is the Word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for, and listen to this list, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Complete and equipped for every good work. And we don't have time to unpack all of these things, but as we are called to participate in restoration, to bring back that which is seemingly dead, God has given us his word that teaches, rebukes, corrects, trains. But why does it do those things? Why is the word living and active so that we can be complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, so that we can participate in the restoration that God is doing. Right? What does equipped for every good work mean? What is every good work? Every good work is everything that God is doing through his church to restore that which is broken. And God says, I've given you my word to equip you, to teach you, to train you so that you can partner with me. But here's the problem, church. Sometimes we're comfortable just waiting for the preacher to get to the passage. Sometimes we're comfortable waiting for the small group to do a, a Bible study on that book of the Bible. 
sometimes we're comfortable waiting for the latest podcast episode to teach us what the Word of God says. And all of those things are great. But friends, we have been given a gift in the Word of God that we can go to, that we can dive into, that we can use to participate in the restoration of all things. And then there's one more. And this one we probably struggle with the most because the last one is the people of God. Now, some of you are like, yeah, Holy Spirit, that's great. Word of God, can't argue with that. People of God, I think I'm good. (laughs) Right? Like two out of three ain't bad, right? But why do we have that thought, right? Because people are messy. People are broken. One of the things that's the most frustrating about the church, but it's also the most beautiful thing about the church, is that it's messy people leading messy people leading messy people leading messy people. It's a big old mess, people. And that's beautiful. Romans chapter 15 says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Now just pause right there. God knows people are messy. Which is why Paul starts this by saying, Hey, we have a God of endurance and encouragement. Because if there's two things you need when you deal with messy people, it's endurance and encouragement. So don't lose sight of who God is in people's mess. And then this passage goes on, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. People are messy. And God says, I know. But I'll encourage you through my word and through the Holy Spirit. And I'll give you endurance through my word and through the Holy Spirit because I want you to have access to the people of God. I want you to be able to come together despite your differences, despite your mess, to live in harmony, that together in one voice you can glorify God. Church, with as much as sometimes we think we don't, we truly do need the people of God. We need a place where we can come in as broken sinners in the middle of our own sanctification and find acceptance and find love and find encouragement and find truth and to join with them in glorifying our Heavenly Father. And so with the completion of redemption and the invitation to participate in restoration comes the accessibility to resources. And so I want to ask you again, how are you using them? How are you using them? 
One last question for us to wrestle with as you search for your own answer to the bigger question of how do you live as a redeemed restorer. This last question is this, and I, I heard this uh, from somebody earlier this week, and I loved it, and so I've been wrestling a lot with this question myself, but it, it goes like this. Do you have a telos that's big enough for your praxis? And some of you are like, what? <laughs> What's, uh, what? But do you have a telos that's big enough for your praxis? Now, once you understand what this means, you're going to be like me, and you're going to repeat it over and over and over again this week. Right? Because they're fun words to say, right? Yeah. But here's where this comes from. A guy named Stephen Garber, he wrote this, this book called The Fabric of Faithfulness. And in it, he asked this question. He said, do you have a telos sufficient personally and publicly to orient your praxis over the course of your life? So a couple terms we need to define, obviously, here. Telos is, is a Greek word. It's used uh, by both the, the writers of the New Testament. It's also used by Greek philosophers. It means this. It's your purpose, your intent, your goal, the ultimate result of an event or process. Your telos is what you're working towards. Where are you going? And then your praxis is how you're accomplishing that. It's the practice of applying ideas and theories to real life, real world problems and situations. And I like the way that, that Garber, he talks about it. He says, your, your ultimate goal orients what you do every day. Right? We've all had goals, whether that's fitness goals, whether that's educational goals, whether that's work goals, and for a time, that has oriented what we do every day, right? If you want to accomplish that goal, you have to do things in the day-to-day -to, -day to get you from point A to point B. But what Stephen Garber argues is he says, sometimes our telos is too small. Because what then happens when you complete that? goal. And I like the language that he used when he talks about how it orients us. Because when you know what your ultimate goal is, what the ultimate end result you want to be, it orients like a compass. It orients, it points you to the direction that you are going to go. But the tricky part of that is we have to find a telos that's both big enough and trustworthy to orient our lives towards. And I think another problem in that is most of us just take life one step at a time. Kind of live in this day-to-day. -day. And, and, and in truth, if I can say this, we live more as reactive believers than proactive believers. We respond to situations in our lives with the fruit of the Spirit, right? When it's warranted, when we feel it's warranted, when it's easy enough, but it hasn't really become our strategy for real-world, everyday, real-life situation problems on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I believe that if that's you, 
if you find yourself more as somebody that's reactive than proactive, I would ask, is your telos too small? Because here's what I love. We know God's telos. We know his ultimate goal, his ultimate result, that God's grand purpose for the world is restoration. It's to restore. It's Amos chapter 9, where he says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat fruit. I will plant them on their land. And hear this. This is the telos. They shall never again be uprooted, says the Lord your God. That's what God has invited us to participate in. That's what God has given us resources to participate in. And friends, if we orient ourselves toward that telos, toward that goal, then you'll find that it has a direct correlation to your praxis, to your day-to-day, how you live, how you interact, what's important to you. And I think we need to wrestle with If God has invited us to participate in the renewal of all things, how am I, in my corner of the world, participating? What am I doing? And and that can look so many different ways. How am I dealing with difficult people? How am I dealing with stubborn children? How am I dealing with a job where I don't feel that I'm appreciated? How am I dealing with a spouse where it seems like there's just a bunch of turmoil? How am I dealing with a church full of messy people? And the hard part in all of this is that we have to decide that when things get difficult, we still don't stop. We keep going. We keep participating. We keep engaging even more. I love the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before his ascension in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus His disciples, they ask him this. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I ask myself that a lot. Lord, is today the day that you're going to restore? I hope so. Is today the day where I can stop dealing with all the brokenness of the world I hope so. Is today the day where my kids don't get on my nerves? Man, I hope so. But whether we realize it or not, friends, we ask this question so often. Lord, is today the day that you're going to restore the kingdom 
love Jesus' answer, but I hate Jesus' answer because he says, it's not for you to know. And I'm like, but God, a date would have been good. But he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what he's saying in there is, hey, you're going to be given access to something that you don't even know the power of. And the reason that you're giving access to it is because you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You're giving access to it because you're going to participate in it. You are going to participate in the restoration of the kingdom. And so how are you using your resources? And how are you orienting your life toward God's end result of complete restoration? Friends, you and I, we've received power to participate. And the question that Easter demands us answer is in light of the resurrection, how are you participating as a redeemed restorer? Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you, God, for your goodness. God, for your unbelievable, unfathomable faithfulness that you have called broken people, but broken people who have been redeemed to join you in your work to restore. And so God, for us today, God, first we confess that so often, so often our goal is not the same goal as yours. And God, so we bring to you our, our pride and our selfishness, our worldly desires. God, we lay them at your feet. And God, with that, God, I pray that for each believer in this room, God, that we would accept then the invitation to participate in something even greater than we could ever imagine. God, in the things that we think are too small, God, might we surrender that lie and recognize that that is restoring the kingdom. God, in the bigger things, might we stand in awe that that is the power of God to bring dry bones to life. So God, we pray. God, use us. Use us to bring your message, your hope, into a world that ultimately you will breathe life back into because of the power that brought Jesus out of the tomb. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.